Welcome to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin, and my guest is one of Chapel Hill's best friends, Marcy Cohen-Ferris. Uh, Marcy and her husband, Bill, have lived here for, oh, Marcy, 30 years now, almost now. Probably getting, about that long. It's, it's, it's getting to be that long, so you're one of the longest. And uh, Marcy's developed a reputation of being somebody who's very helpful to all of us, and uh, mainly for living with uh, my great friend, Bill Ferris. Both of y'all were supposed to be retired now, Marcy. What happened? Why aren't you retired? We're we're rewired. <laughs> That's what happened. Uh, and you know, I I think we were just ready for kind of a, the next phase of our life of productivity and creativity. And for each of us, that looks a little different. Bill continues to be really engaged in his research, his scholarship from years ago, some of his earliest field work is now more accessible than ever because of, you know, the digital landscape. So I think you know about the Voices of Mississippi production that opened at Lincoln Center in New York last year. And that's been happening around the country. It's, It's a theatrical performance using young Mississippians who are the really the grandchildren, the grandchildren literally the, uh, Bill's of the folks pictures that he of when he was yeah so he's doing that and I'm I'm really busy the same way with uh, my scholarship and and right now I'm at the Center for the Study of the American South at UNC happy to be there for a well, year well they're very fortunate to have yeah. you there well we I, I wanted to talk you to talk to us about um, your book it's not really a new book anymore but it's a it's it's still newish, I guess. It came out last year. It's called Edible North Carolina: A Journey Across a State of Flavor. And this is a book that you've both uh, you've written parts of it, but you the large part is uh, assembling, editing a group of people from all over North Carolina who talk about food. Now, how did this? How did, where did you get the idea for this book? Well, this came really out of my teaching at at Carolina, and I'd been teaching a an American food studies course, like how do we understand how does food really shape our experience, you know, in this country? What does it tell us about the economy, about race, about gender, about, you know, every every aspect of our lives? And of course, in that kind of class, you talk a lot about Southern food and Southern food economies. And that led to talking a lot about our own worlds right here in North Carolina. So I ended up teaching a seminar that was really focused on North Carolina food systems and cultures. We brought in lots of people across the state to speak to our students. And out of that project, we hoped there would be a book that would come from it that would really speak to the contemporary food scene in North Carolina. And that's what Edible North Carolina is. Well, the the people who've written uh, pieces for your book, I think, are all together, if not all together, largely not students, but they are... Uh, people active in producing food and consuming food and selling it. And um, so um, how does your seminar lead to these people? Yeah, well, you know, in North Carolina, I think we could really say there's a food family. And I know that family pretty well after living here for 30 years, but I also barely knew them. You know, I know some gatekeepers and some people that can lead me to other folks. And you're one of them, D.G. You've traveled this whole state 
and have so given attention to small restaurateurs, chefs, and what's so vibrant about food cultures across the state with your work. And I think you know, too, you meet one person, they introduce you to, you know, another world, another community, another pocket, another important world of flavor. But I, my students conducted interviews across the state. Mm. You know, they went out for our course and did a lot of oral histories. And those are now in the Southern Oral History Programs collection at, at Wilson Library. But I knew this book could not really if it was going to focus on the contemporary food landscape, it was not just a straight history of, of food in North Carolina. It needed to be a collection of voices of people that really know that complicated food scene across the state. So I knew it was going to go from the coast out to the mountains and identified about 20 writers, I think is what we have, in, including the, the introduction is by Vivian Howard, who's been such an important voice for, this is for those who didn't get to see her on television yeah. or haven't seen her. She's not only a, a great chef and great writer, but a great TV star. Yeah, she really is. Vivian um, began, along with her husband, of course, um, her, her ex-husband, um, chef and farmer over in Kinston, which was just one of the finest restaurants in our state. And now she owns additional uh, venues, one in Charleston and down in Wilmington as well, but she's been such a voice about what is the taste of our state? What are the ingredients that really make up the traditional and the evolving food ways of our state and why? And so I wanted Vivian, you know, we invited her to to write the introduction and that's what she talks about. It's really in that kind of fabulous voice she has. It's funny. It's sad. It's edgy. It's joyful. You know, and it, it speaks to what does it mean to grow up in a place like Eastern Carolina on a big farm, you know, where her family, you know, we're involved in the pork industry and raising tobacco. And, you know, all she really wanted to do was get out, <laughs> get you know, as York. a young woman. And she got to New York, you know, and she and Ben started, you know, a, a small food business, but then were tempted back by her parents, you know, that if they would invest in Kinston if if Vivian and, and Ben would come back and consider opening a place there, which is part of a, a of a really important revival, I think, of the food economy across the state. Well, Marcy, I mean, um, we ought to wait to the end, but the sad thing is that uh, the chef and the farmer and Vivian have you know hit a roadblock, and is eloquent and sensible as she was about food and and not just that, but, I mean, creative. Um, it hasn't proved to be economically successful yet. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. the last I heard, and you can tell me if you've heard differently, is that they're renovating Chef and Farmer and coming back with a different concept that they think will really work for the town mm -hmm. of Kinston and mm -hmm. for the region. And Vivian wrote a recent editorial op-ed for the New York Times that was really fantastic about kind of the broken model of high-end restaurants. And we've seen, we saw that particularly, you know, during COVID, how difficult it was for the restaurants that I think are higher-end, you know, the ones that we might call white tablecloth restaurants, whatever, you know, that appealed to a very 
you know, particular clientele that can afford to have that kind of dining. You know, but it's very difficult to maintain those businesses for owners like Vivian, you know, to pay the insurance, to pay the taxes, to to pay for the decent, for the local, the price of good local seasonal food, to pay for pasture-raised pork. Yeah, well, it's uh, so it's such a tough thing. It makes you at least ask the question, is right. this really where we, where we need to go? And that is what she asked in her editorial. Mm-hmm. And I think what they're going to be doing with Chef and Farmer, it may even be more of kind of a great, <laughs> the most like delicious cafeteria that you've ever seen. But because they're, they're mainly using that space now as more of a commissary kitchen that where they prepare the food for the Viv's fridge system right, that they've right, started. Right. Mainly. Well, tell us about that. Some, oh, something Viv's fridge. Of. It's so interesting. They're doing that right now, like, you know, on Baldhead Island, you know, more in kind of our, uh, you know, some of our, our, our beach communities. And I'm sh- and I think there's soon to be one. There's probably one in Raleigh. There's soon to be one in Chapel Hill. But you go, you put your little credit card in what looks like, you know, a nice, great kind of stand-up refrigerator with a glass door, and you can buy fabulous prepared food fresh by, you know, Vivian's operation over in Kinston, casseroles, uh, prepared dishes, desserts, breads, appetizers, Great way to go for family holiday, for, you know, need a, a great evening meal on a busy weeknight. and But that food is prepared fresh in Kinston and then well, delivered. Well, let's talk some more about it. But first, let's take a quick break. If you joined us later, I'm talking to Marcy Ferris, and we're talking about uh, her book, uh, her, a book that she has both written and edited called Edible North Carolina Journey Across a State of Flavor. She and I'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. If you joined us late, my guest is Marcy Ferris. We're talking about a book which she has assembled, edited, and written a large part of as well called Edible North Carolina, A Journey Across a State of Flavor. And But when we stopped talking, we were talking about one of the most important and, most, and best-known people in the food operation uh, of North Carolina who's kind of stumbled onto some hard times. Yeah, we were talking about the changes that Vivian Howard has been making in in her operations. And, you know, I think it's not so—yeah, it's hard because it's been really hard on everybody. Everybody that's a food professional, an entrepreneur, a chef, you know, involved in, you know, food, you know, food products, uh, the breweries, distilleries, you know, whatever it might be, have really faced difficult times, you know, during COVID and and before, you know, and then coming out of it. And I think what Vivian's done is tried to be as creatively reactive to make sure that she's taking care of her people, that she can pay them fairly, that she's still meeting uh, the best needs she can for a community, and really trying to come up with more creative, sustainable models for preparing great food for our community. Well, let's I'm going to talk about this all along. Let's talk about some other examples in terms of the authors of sections. And one of the people who seems to have found um, a place is Ricky Moore oh. over in Durham, who is a trained chef. Right. But he's 
um, serving the, the same kind of group that the old-fashioned uh, fish fry groups. Right. And I'm, I think it's going to be a struggle for him, but he seems to be just doing well. Ricky's tell doing us, great. Tell us about Ricky. So Ricky Moore owns Saltbox Seafood Joint in Durham. It is beloved. He just won Best Chef Southeast for a James Beard Award this year, which is, you know, it's like the Oscars of the food world. And he has been, you know, talking about creative models. That's his business. You know, it's a small business. I believe that he owns the building. You know, he's tried to create a model that is a little more sustainable for his own family life and, you know, for 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 the for the challenge of of a restaurant business these days i think what i've been hearing from a lot of people is that kind of small casual uh venue like ricky has in saltbox seafood joint you know you just go you know you wait in line for maybe a few, you know a few minutes you talk to lots of great people you know it's reasonable as you know it might it's more expensive than a fast food venue a commercial fast food venue because ricky's also very invested in the local seafood movement in our state. But he's been an incredible spokesperson for that industry, for local seafood in our state. And that's what you have at Saltbox Seafood Joint. It's local from the North Carolina coast. It's seasonal and it's sustainable fish. Yeah. Well, I compare uh, – well, just, just focusing on Ricky um, – uh, but both he and Vivian came back to North Carolina. Yeah. They're not these uh, new chefs who've moved in and are bringing us uh, good good food preparation. But these both of these folks— Deeply connected. Deeply connected and in different ways connected to the real food of North Carolina. Yeah. So what I want you to talk to us about is uh, how Ricky connects to fish. I mean, we don't yeah. think of fish as being uh, in Durham— Oh, I know. And they're not anybody out there. Yeah. There are, I guess there are people in ponds growing different kinds of fish, yeah. but essentially it's not not right now the kind of um, agricultural product that is uh, like like corn or tobacco or something right, like that. Right, right, right. So folks, you know, in the Piedmont always got, you know, fish brought into them, you know, but it was often from another place. You know, it was not even from our from our coast, right? A lot of the fish from North Carolina – where did it traditionally go? It went straight up to the Fulton, you know, fish market in New York or, you know, it was shipped, um, you know, uh, abroad, you know, to Japan or, you know, but it was very difficult even for school kids in Harker's Island, you know, to get the local fish that was being caught by their parents mm-hmm. and by their grandparents. Well, Ricky did have that kind of international and very cosmopolitan, you know, world of culinary training and, but he knew that he wanted to come back home, and home for him was Newburn, and so he grew up in a, a historic African American community that was very connected to the fishing industry and to the food industry. Grandmas that worked in, you know, were, you know, that were cooks in the in the school, you know, in the you know the lunchroom ladies and and folks that you know were deeply connected to just fishing and throwing a pole, you know, over those green you know, metal, <laughs> you know, uh, gates and fences that are there right on the, on the, on the river in, in New Bern. And 
that's the fish that he, you know, if you were hungry, there was going to be fish. Well, now that's not the kind of fish he's serving in Durham, is it? Yeah. He's serving uh, fish that North Carolina fishermen have brought back. That uh, is correct. Yeah. Off yeah. the co- saltwater yeah. off the coast. Right. And But, you know, what he's trying to emphasize is the seasonal seafood that we might not all recognize so much anymore. You know, we're so used to just those standard like flounder and salmon and, you know, and shrimp and shrimp that's not from North Carolina. Right. You know, so, you know, Ricky's got grouper and dogfish and, you know— you know, you know, all kinds of wonderful, delicious fish. And what I love about at Saltbox Seafood Joint, he's got a chalkboard that just says, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's what's it's what's available. What's what's in season, but more more than that, what he's been able to get through his contacts is freshly caught off the coast right. mostly of North Carolina and shipped so that it's uh, still fresh when it gets here. Right, and we're lo- so lucky today that there are folks like Ryan Stansel and his partner over at Local Seafood in Raleigh. And those were, Ryan, you know, went to school over, at, you know, Appalachian State, you know, studied, you know, sustainable, uh, you know, in, in environmental studies kind of guy and has really created a business much like a, a CSA, you know, community-supported agriculture. This is community-supported fisheries. So they realized it was difficult to get fish over here in the Piedmont. And so they started transporting fish and created this business called Locals. And there's more than Locals today, but they're one of the chief important sustainable, you know, marketers and merchants that are, that are going from fishery to table. Well, so they're over in Ocracoke buying from the Ocracoke Watermen's Association, the Ocracoke Co-op right there that most of us know if you go to Ocracoke, you're going to go right there and buy from, you know, the co-op. For, uh, food or fish that have come in this morning. Right, exactly. So Ricky can be serving food that came in that day that he got from 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 locals and that's what he talks about in the book, too, is how do you buy fish in North Carolina if you live anywhere, coast, Piedmont, over in the western part of the state, in Charlotte? What are the questions to ask? Ask where the fish is from. You know, uh, what's in season? What's local? And as his dear friend Karen Omsbacher, who's the director of the Core Sound Museum over in Harker's Island, she says fish is our inheritance in North Carolina. Mm. And I think that's such a powerful thing, you know, that it is our inheritance. So we need to ask for it because that, that why, why, why get something frozen? Frozen's great, but frozen from our coast, that's, that's delicious. That's a great way to go. Well, well, if you join us late, I'm visiting with Marcy Ferris and we're talking about uh, food in North Carolina uh, on the occasion of uh, her book, her, the book that she's edit, assembled and edited using experts from all over the state. It's called Edible North Carolina, A Journey Across a State of Flavor. Uh, Marcy Ferrison, I'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. If you joined us late, 
I'm visiting with Marcy Ferris. We're talking about North Carolina food and on the occasion of this wonderful book that you put together, Marcy, uh, Edible North Carolina Journey Across a State of Flavor. We can't talk about all of the different people that you recruited to write about different aspects of North Carolina food, but you, um, we, we talked in the last hour about the wonderful character and cook and uh, selector of seafood, uh, Ricky Moore over in Durham. Oh, and DG, I misspoke. You know, it's Ryan Speckman, not Stancil. Ryan Stancil is part of my great photography team, along with his beloved partner, Baxter Miller, who was a photographer for this book. But Ryan and Lynn are the owners of Locals, and I hope everybody will look up their website and, and check out how— Where to, is it located? So Locals had a market in in Raleigh in that—I can't remember the name of it, but it's that little great open market uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, that's so fabulous downtown. But Locals, you'll find there—they they deliver seafood to the Mo- retail operations. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, one of the people that you mentioned uh, in our last hour is Karen Amsbacher from uh, down at Harker's Island. And she is a vibrant and diligent advocate for uh, fish, fisher, fish and fishermen, and in part because uh, Harker's Island, I guess, uh, in the old days was just totally a fishing fishing community. What what does her experience and wisdom contribute to the message from your book, for your book? Yeah, Karen wrote the two essays that are on the local seafood movement in the state are by Ricky, as we just talked mm-hmm. about, and he wrote a really beautiful essay, you know, that really does come from... Mm, <laughs> makes you cry. <laughs> from, it does. It's from his heart and from his community, but it's also really instructive about how to be a local seafood eater and how Mm. to help, you know, maintain that important economy in our state. How do we help independent fishermen in the state, fishermen and women, fisher folk? And then Karen wrote the the second essay, which also really helps us understand the history of the local seafood movement in this state and and some of its some of its politics, but but also, you know, she points out, she really helped me understand again what, what we said about food about seafood being our inheritance but you know young people you know have been involved in in that industry on our coast you know for for a very long time but what we've lost are those really important part of the infrastructure the fish houses you know and the fish houses there used to be thousands of them up and down or hundreds up and down the north carolina coast and that was the place where fishermen would come in at the end of the day and you know, they sell their fish and it would be iced and processed and cut up and then boxed and shipped again out of the state usually. But those became, followed the way of what we're seeing with agriculture, the consolidation of of small agriculture and into big agriculture and of small seafood processors and fish houses into two to three, one to two large commercial fishing, you know, operators out of the state. So like the Ocracoke, you know, Watermen's Association and the co-op there, that's one of the last fish houses, you know, up 
you know, up and down our coast, you know, that's most folks will know Hardy Plyler there uh, and Patty, uh, his, his wife. Uh, well, his, it's a great place to go if you're on Ocracoke. You oh can my just come gosh. and watch the um, fish come in and watch them. And Patty's the, the beautiful face that greets you at the fish market there. And they have an incredible board behind Patty's head that lists what's local, what's in, what's available for the day. And, you know, and they're not open, you know, all the year round. You know, they close for just a couple months and then there they are again. Well, well, um, golly, there's so much uh, wisdom that you've accumulated that you're willing to share. But I want to talk a little bit about um, an article that Andrea Weigel did Weigel. she say Weigel? Right. A uh, wonderful uh, writer and when she was writing for the News and Observer about food. And she, uh, her article disturbed me. And what it's called is the pig math of pasture-raised pork. Right. And um, I, I want you to correct, correct me if I got, got it wrong, but her message, I think, is that as good as it is to have the pigs raised in your backyard and treated like family until it's time, that economically that is really a real challenge. And she talked, gave some specific examples of um, the difference in cost in, in uh, you know, uh, massive hog production like right. we uh, like is the like is done in North Carolina versus the sort of small farmers. And um, I wonder if you talk to us a little bit about whether or not uh, is whether it's important for us to develop a way for pigs to be raised in pastures and delivered, or whether or not we just got to surrender to the um, uh, corporate pork production. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's such a fact in this state. You know, I think we're one of the biggest, you know, pork producers, you know, in the world and certainly in the United States. And everybody knows here in North Carolina, more pigs than people. But, you know, the the pork operation that we see over in Eastern Carolina today, the big industrial pork processing, and now much of that owned, you know, by China, you know, some some of that processing, um, it's really a very good example if you want to understand industrial agriculture. You know, what happened in the modern era, you know, how was Wendell Murphy, you know, or who, you know, farmer, legislator, a business person, native, you know, of of North Carolinian of Duplin County, you know, very important in the 70s and 80s and 90s in creating that kind of consolidated, vertically integrated industry of the pork industry. So you if you couldn't get big, you got out, right? That was that was what happened kind of during the American farm crisis of the 1980s and that was the mantra, get big, you know, or get out of it. So that left very little room for small pork farmers, you know, except that that's what, that's what North Carolina was really based on, you know, the, the Piedmont, Eastern North Carolina, were, and in Western North Carolina were small farmers. It became very difficult for them to maintain small farms unless they were working a couple other jobs, you know, both wife and husband, children contributing, but the pasture-raised pork movement has really become a movement of our time, and that's young people, 
young farmers saying, you know, that they reject being a part of that big industrial process, which has led a lot of people to ruin. And, you know, because only kind of the very large folks could survive in it. And that contract farming situation where you're, you know, contracted to the big industrial pork, you know, production industry, that's very challenging for small, you know, for the middle level farmers. Well, I, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's easy to turn this into something that's um, politics. Politics and also <laughs> sinfulness, I guess, is the, but the, um, Andrea brought it home to me when she talked about the dilemma that uh, people who are serving barbecue uh, at retail have in terms of whether or not uh, they can support paying for pasture-raised pasture right. pork. And she would argue that, yes, it's better. It tastes better. It's better for you. But if I've got – if I'm coming to one of my old barbecue places and – they want to charge me $9 for a barbecue sandwich. I'm right. going to – I've got some problems with that. Right. And they say, well, you know, we're, we're, look, taste taste this. Going over to the – what's the uh, – I think you're you're so right, though, because I do think, isn't it a right of every North Carolinian to have a barbecue sandwich for $3.50? Yeah, right. I, you know, I, I that is – it's – you know, it does cause people to stop. And, you know, you can't imagine – but again, I think, you know, so we have a right. We can choose we can choose that industrial pork. That That's a reason that, you you know, barbecue places, mm-hmm. beloved barbecue places across the state that choose to purchase industrial raised pigs, fine. It does allow you to provide a more affordable sandwich. But that's a choice you have. You know, there's a cost to that cheap pork sandwich. Well, the, yeah. I mean, it's illustrative, I think. And you can you – can, Tell me that of the food situation across the country, and that is, if we really want it cheap, we're going to find ourselves buying mass-produced, not environmentally right um, enhancing. Somebody's paying that. Uh, somebody's paying that other four fifty. You know, it really, really are. You know, and that would be the people that work in the pork processing plants, working class, working poor folks who are really injured by that production line. The animals, it's devastating for the animals. I mean, it, you know, we've all seen the films. This is just, you know, in the movies and the documentaries about industrial pork processing. And it's, but even the most, it's, it's, it's just devastating for our environment. Because we've seen, like we were just talking about the coast, the industrial toxic runoff into the estuaries, into the North Carolina coast is deeply impacting the fish industry. The local seafood industry, you know, has been often devastated by that after, like after Hurricane, after Floyd, you know, and we saw a lot of that pig, oh, yeah. pig manure, sure. you know, coming from those huge lagoons. That's, that's not, you know, that's not well, you're getting na- into politics now. That's not natural <laughs> to have that many pigs because that's a lot of pig poop, which suddenly, you know, pig poop didn't used to be so toxic. People love pig poop because you could use it as, you know, you, if you only had, you know, 10 pigs at home, three, four, you could maintain, you can handle. And that's what pasture-raised farmers are trying to do is to 
raise a sustainable number of pigs so that they are not environmentally harmful. But again, it's a choice in our state. I'm not, I I understand a lot of people are, you know, well, it's make a, a living a through choice, industrial pork. Uh, it's a choice for the public, I guess. But from an individual standpoint, someone who tries to uh, raise uh, pigs naturally on a small right. group right. and then tries to compete with the uh, factory, factory-fed uh, animals, it, it, you just can't compete with it. It, it, it might it's, be awful, but it's very efficient in producing. It's, it's difficult to compete, but it can be done. And it means you have to be really creative about your markets, who you're selling to. I mean, I know that Sam Suchoff, who's part of the pasture-raised pig, you know, growers here in the in in North Carolina, or at least he's buying pork from the pasture-raised, you know, pig folks. You know, he's now selling some of his cured, you know, uh, pork to some of the finest restaurants mm-hmm. in New York City. So he's going to sell both to, you know, here into the Lantern. You know, you can go downtown, have it at the Lantern and many other wonderful locations, you know, restaurants. But you can also, you know, he's going to get that dollar value that he really needs from an upscale New York restaurant as well. You know, so I think these entrepreneurs are being really creative about how they're selling it and what what it mm. takes. Also, we've got mid, you know, we've got kind of the organizations like First Hand Foods, you know, which and I'm thinking of of another organization of these are f- aggregators. So, uh, First Hand Food t- is a middle woman <laughs> between. Mm-hmm. The grower, the small grower, the pasture-raised pig farmer, and then our nice restaurants. Helping, helping bro- right, broker that. Right. They broker that. And that those those kind of wonderful— well, On that optimistic note, yeah. we need to take a break. Right. And um, for those of you who join us late, I'm visiting with Marcy Ferris, and she's uh, teaching me uh, more than I knew before about uh, North Carolina food. Uh, we'll be right back after the short break. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with Marcy Cohen-Ferris. We're talking about food in North Carolina, uh, the politics of it, and also the, some of the beauty of it. Uh, her book, uh, it's a book that she edited, but she put it together and, and uh, recruited the people to write stories about North Carolina food. It's called Edible North Carolina, A Journey Across a State of Flavor, and it's Great reading and very informative, Marcy. Thanks for writing this or for what for editing, editing. this book. Editing yeah. is not that's not a fair because you've written it and you've uh, helped people write. Uh, I have and works. I and DG. I have to give a shout out to my associate editor, is Casey Highsmith, who is a was a doctoral student at, at in the American Studies Department at Carolina, but she is now a doctor. Oh, that's <laughs> she just fin- she just defended her her dissertation. Well, that that's got to make you feel. Yeah, but she was a great editor, and um, you know, one thing I was thinking that I think is so important. We were talking about pork, and you know, the the challenges of you know our kind of our right to buy a you know a, an inexpensive you know pig sandwich, you know, barbecue sandwich. But I think we have to think, and hopefully what this book helps people to do is 
think about our future and now our immediate present. You know, as we face climate change and we so are so worried as we really feel it, you know, with spring here, we you know, in, in March, everything in bloom a little bit sooner than we're used to and, you know, some really warm weather that we can do a lot mm. to inter, you know, to be interventionist, you know, to intervene within climate change. And that means taking care of our environment and that means probably putting a little more into your food dollars to really buy local and to eat local. So try that pork <laughs> that says it's from firsthand foods, you know, at Weaver Street. You can buy that and it is delicious. And you know that you're protecting the rights of workers, that you're that these animal welfare is being cared for, and that you're not hurting the environment, and that you're promoting the small and regional and urban food economies of our state. So you're doing a lot to give back when you're when you're purchasing cheaper industrial, you know, uh, grown pork. That money's some of it's a lot of it's coming back to North Carolina, but I'd say it's coming back to, you know, just a certain leadership within <laughs> within those industries. Not so much most North Carolinians. So I hope people understand the joy of eating in North Carolina through this book that you can be active participants in shaping, you know, the economy of our state. And it's going to impact your health in really powerful ways and your, the flavor of your food. Well, let's, we've got about two minutes. So uh, stop and tell those of us who aren't experts, uh, suggest to us ways that we might uh, get a good meal and be eating in a way that is uh, sustainable. Yeah. Are there opportunities around here in yeah. Chapel Hill? Oh, yeah. So many of our, our, of our locally owned restaurants are buying food from our local farmers. So we live in a place now where there's a really revitalized small farm movement. You know, the Piedmont looks, with the number of farmers that we've got now, small farmers, a lot like it did in the 19th oh, century. Gosh. You know, there's suddenly cheesemakers, Right. You know, Chapel Hill, you know, cheese and, you know, uh, you know, so many more boxcar. You just can't even believe it. You know, that there's a really significant dairy industry, you know, in our state again. So you can go to farmers markets. You can go to your grocery store. You can go to Harris Teeter. You don't be ha- you don't have to go to a farmers market to buy local food, but look for that and supplement. How do I, if I go to Harris Teeter to buy bacon or to um, buy a, a- Vegetables. Start in your vegetable section and look at what's local. That's what I do. You know, especially like this time of year, you know, you can you can see, oh, the collards are coming out. Oh, my gosh, there's collards. You know, we start to see that at New Year's here, of course, and black-eyed peas and, you know, and sweet potatoes. What's, what's you know, they'll, they'll, it'll say grown in North Carolina, you know, on certain vegetable bins. And I just Go for that. Well, I have to ask you uh, this, and I bet you can tell. I bet there is an answer. I just don't know if, if instead of being educated as you have done in your book, uh, and you do have some really good recipes, is there a cookbook of local cookbook that features local North Carolina foods, or is your book the best? Just oh, with- there are so many, and they, they should turn folks, listeners should turn to UNC Press and look at the wonderful. You know, food books that are available through UNC Press, the Savor the South series. Sherry Castle has wonderful cookbooks and food books. And I'd recommend her PBS series, The Key Ingredient. That is a wonderful show. It's just won several awards. It's a wonderful TV series where Sherry grows across the state. But anything Sherry writes, 
yeah, is good. fabulous about North Carolina. And then Ricky Moore's got a wonderful book that Casey Highsmith actually co-wrote with Ricky. That's a fabulous cookbook on preparing North Carolina seafood. Well, on this positive, upbeat note, this is a good way to end. But thanks to you, Marcy, and your book, Edible North Carolina, for showing us the problems that we face and giving us some clues about some of the solutions. Yeah, there's there's just delicious food available in our state. And, you know, there's a lot of good work to be done in the world, but this is actually tastes good when you do it. <laughs> thanks to Marcy Ferris, and thanks to all y'all for listening. This is D.G. Martin, and Sue's talking, and I'll be back here before you know it.